0: sentimental journey gonna set my heart at ease gonna make a sentimental journey to renew old memories got my bag got my reservation spent each time I long to hear that all aboard. Seven, that's the time we leave at seven. I'll be waiting up for heaven, counting every mile of railroad track that takes me. Could be so yearning. Why did I decide to roam? Gotta take that sentimental journey. mantle journey.
1: Wiggly,
0: wiggly, wiggly with me. Oink, oink. This little piggy went to market.
2: This little piggy stayed home. And good evening, everybody. It is Saturday night, April the 17th, year 2010. I'm Wong Hughes. And Patricia, would you like to introduce our guest for the evening?
3: I would love to. Hi, everybody. We are talking tonight with Jack French, who is author of Private Eyelashes, Radio's Lady Detectives, and it is put out by Bear Manor Media. Bear Manor Media is our very best friend. They, they really do a wonderful job of helping us preserve old-time radio and putting out quality books like this. This is in the second edition, Jack, is that correct?
4: That is correct. Yes. The okay.
3: The first I wanna one go came out in
4: 2004. Uh huh. And the one that you're holding uh, came out about four months ago.
3: It's brand brand new. Okay. Um, and and I loved it. I mean, I'm just. It is so good. I want to give a little bit of background about you and about the book, and then maybe we could launch into some questions after you correct me and tell me what I got wrong here. I'll do my best. Okay. From the book, I've got, um, from me, it's a gift to old-time radio enthusiasts, as far as I'm concerned. It's a complete history of all of the feminine sleuths. There are 43 in here. Did I count that correctly?
4: That's correct.
3: 43. I did not know more than four existed. I mean, I am feeling so embarrassed here. You've got 43 shows, characters who perform them. Uh, you gave information about the performers themselves in addition to the shows. Uh, it, it just, I cross my heart, if anybody loves Golden Age of Radio Detectives, you cannot put this book down until you get to the end. Now, in 2004, Jack, you received the Agatha Award, which is very prestigious, and, and it was for private eyelashes, in the best... Of non-fiction category the Agatha is a literary award given to mystery and crime writers and you cool. also received the Rockford award from the Friends of Old-time radio you hear Walden talking about foTR periodically right. and I need your help yeah. in terms of your role and history and what you do with the metropolitan Washington old-time radio Club
4: I'd be happy to tell you
3: help me uh, yeah. the
4: Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club is is one of about 20 hobby groups in the United States. Uh, We're not one of the oldest. Uh, We came about in uh, 1984 uh, and we've never had more than 300 members usually around 100 to 150. And we like to brag we're small enough to know you and big enough to serve you. Um, By that I mean that the club puts out uh, a, uh, a newspaper I'm very proud of, Radio Recall. comes out every other month. We've got approximately 12 to 15,000 shows that the members can rent, either in cassettes or CDs. And we also have a book and script library that uh, exceeds 400 pieces that they can also rent for a small fee. And uh, we've been very successful, I think.
3: I have read a couple of issues of Radio Recall. Wonderful. Uh, Would you give me a website address so that people can go out and check it out for themselves?
4: Yeah, the the easiest way to remember it is just www.radiorecall.com, and that will take you to our website.
3: Excellent. Easy stuff. Okay. Um, Jack, in, in terms of your background, you've got... Everything from Navy cryptologist to
4: retired FBI
3: in your background.
4: <laughs> That's right. Is that true? Yes, it is. Yes,
3: well, I, I went to. through and looked at the research that you did for this book, and when Walden and I had a couple of minutes before he called you, I said, Walden, if I ever did anything wrong... And I found out Jack French was after me. He would find me at the end of the driveway with my hands up. I mean, I just, I mean, I have never seen such research put into anything, never mind a book. It is just staggering. So I found out, you helped me find out, I thought after six or seven years of old-time radio. Um, and I'm really an enthusiast here, I thought I had at least gotten to kindergarten. And when I went through your book, I realized I haven't been out of preschool yet.
4: Well, it's 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 definitely a niche area, and, and that's part of what fascinated me on it. Uh, when I started the research on it, I, only, I was only aware of six lady detectives on radio, and I said, uh, there's got to be more and whatever. And... Uh, I talked to Barbara Watkins at Spurvac, and, and she said, Oh, I'm sure there might be ten, but there can't be much more than that. <laughs> and, uh, and she was able to, to find several more for me. But uh, <coughs> at the beginning of 2003, I had contacted uh, Bear Manor Media and, and spoke to the boss man, Ben O'Mart, And I said, uh, What would you think about a book on Lady detectives?" And he said, Well, that's great. He said, How many were there? And I said, Well, I found ten already. And he said, that's not a book, but it's a good article. <laughs> he said, call me back when you got at least 25. So I, I continued burrowing into the uh, old-time radio archives of, of anyone I could contact and any source I could find. And, any, uh, and, and actually, a lot of the information came to me. I didn't even have to find it. By that, I mean that, that the old-time radio community is a relatively small one. And every one of the researchers, like Jim Cox or Martin Rams, Jr. or Jim Widner, know what the other guy's working on.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And if they run across something that's uh, on their projects that impacts on yours, they'll send it to you. And that's, that's kind of the way it works. Sharing community. Yeah, very, th- very much so.
3: When you came up with 43... When did you know it was time to sit back and say, I think I've got enough for Ben?
4: <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, what we did is, is kind of expand the category. And I don't, I don't think we're cheating when we include the partners of, of detectives. Uh, and, and my criteria, in which I, I set forth in the book, was, look, you have to, in order to be considered a, a lady detective, you have to be contributing substantially the solutions of the crime, whether your partner is helping you solve it, or your boss, or your husband, or your boyfriend. So that that expands it, um, and and I'll give you an example in, in people that were cut out of it, uh, in in Ellery Queen series, uh, Nikki is uh, in every show, uh-huh. but but never contributes anything except saying at the end, well, gosh, Ellery, how'd you solve that one? <laughs> um, in, in one case, the murderer is uh, her next-door neighbor in her apartment, and she's she never tumbles to the guy or figures it out. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I've asked some of the experts on, on Ellery Queen, including Martin Graham, that he said, well, it was just felt that In order for him to continue to be this superior deductive brain, he couldn't have a woman helping him. They put a woman on the radio show in order to get, you know, more women audience. Yeah. But they weren't going to give her any responsibility for helping solve the crimes. And
3: so poor Nikki Porter wound up not being a full-fledged detective.
4: That is correct.
3: Now. You, you broke these up into uh, categories, and we're, we're talking about the crime-solving groups. Right, um, right. It, is it okay if I just run through real quickly the sure, categories I, that you yeah, put them in? And,
4: and the chapter headings, I think, will give people a good idea of the groupings that they used, and, and they'll probably even guess the identity of some of the people who would fit in those categories.
3: Assuming we know that these shows even existed, I never even heard anything about or breathed about so many of these shows. The first section you identified as the First Ladies. Why did you call them the First Ladies?
4: Well, because literally, in terms of radio chronology, they were the first ones to come on radio. Um, And this just goes back to the early 30s.
3: uh Uh-huh. And you've got Irene Delroy, Mm -hmm. Marie Ravel, Phil Mm -hmm. Coe, Carolyn Day, and Kitty Keene. Right. So those those five are in the original group. You would right. consider the the front runners in yeah.
4: this. Yeah, they're the front runners. Uh, <laughs> they they came on first. Uh, I think now three of those were syndicated shows uh, by Transco, and uh, Kitty Keene was primarily a soap opera, but she was a detective and she did solve crimes, so she gets in there.
3: Um. I'm probably jumping ahead of myself here, but I saw the word soap opera mentioned several times in relation to several of the shows that you've used in here. Was there was there something special about attracting an audience when you could marry two genres like a soap opera and a mystery or a soap opera and a detective show? Uh,
4: that's a really good question and and I'm I'm not sure. I I think that that uh, Basically, the soap operas had their own built-in appeal and their own captive audience in terms of uh, the demographics of their listeners, the times that were planned for that, and even the sponsors of the show were aimed at a, a, a female audience, particularly. And I, and I think that occasionally throwing a little bit of a, of a detective genre into it uh, would give it a little bit more spice. It wouldn't attract any any male listeners, I don't think, because these were on in the daytime.
3: Ah, uh, okay.
4: But um, some of the characters just demanded it. For example, uh, Perry Mason was a soap opera on radio. It wasn't when it came to TV, but it was on radio. And then some of the, the shows were possibly masquerading as soap operas and were primarily a detective show, like Two on a Clue. Uh, that was a 15-minute show, and it was in between two other soap operas in the middle of the afternoon, but it, but it was clearly a, a crime-solving detective show, not a soap opera.
3: That's interesting. I would have figured it in the flip that they would have a detective show because that's so intriguing, at least it is to me. I'm a detective fan and have it masquerade, have that part, the masquerade, to cover up the soap opera, that the, the detective would be the attraction as opposed to the soap opera.
4: Yeah. Well, you might test your theory on this by, by listening to some of the Perry Mason ones, um, and you, you'll find that, that they can't escape the soap opera trappings. For example... Um, a scene might open with with Perry Mason and Lieutenant Tragg about to break down the door to capture Killer Barkus. And the announcer will say, but before we do, let's turn back to um, the household of of Lieutenant Bragg where his wife is saying to her best friend, gosh, I wonder if he's in any danger today. (laughs) He seemed a little (laughs) nervous when he left morning, and, and then she would respond, and we might have ten minutes of that commiserating of the two women talking about recipes, talking about their problems, before we get back to Perry Mason about to knock down the door on this uh-huh. project. uh uh-huh.
3: <laughs> I, I have not been able to find very many Perry Masons, and because they were serialized, they jump in, in the middle when you don't have the entire series, so yeah, I have missed true. much of what you're telling me here. Yeah. Okay, and the other categories, you've got In the Driver's Seat, and that's self-explanatory. Right. Uh, you've got The Affairs of Anne Scotland, uh, Time for time for Love. This is interesting, we'll, we'll come back to that one. Um, defense Attorney, Lady in Blue, Miss Pinkerton, Government Girl, Police Woman. Those are, are clearly um, solve-the-crime type shows. There's nothing in question about that. But you've got Better Haves in here, so you've, you've got the husband and wife teams as well. Right. With the thin man, Mr. and Mrs. North, the Abbott Mysteries. Now, the Abbott Mysteries, I didn't even know about. It's a crime, Mr. Collins, front page, Farrell. That one sounds really interesting. Two on a clue, which you just mentioned. And uh, Michael and Kitty, Michael and Kitty Piper. you got partners in crime. So you've got two people working together. And a couple of these people would really recognize in a heartbeat. Casey, crime photographer. You've got Ann Williams. He called her Annie throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Patsy Bowen with Nick Carter, Margot Lane with the Shadow. Uh, so, it's, these are ones people would tend to recognize. Uh, nose for news. Tell me about that. Nose for news and clues.
4: <laughs> well, that's a, of course a, an old-time expression for for describing uh, a good reporter. An editor will say, "Well, she's got a good nose for news." Um, and so, the people in this chapter. Were, their main occupation was connected with the news media, although, of course, it always got them into uh, a crime situation where they could solve and bring the guilty person to justice.
3: Mm-hmm. Great, and you've got five shows in there. Me and My Gal Friday. Here we go with Perry Mason. This is cool. We've got Della Street. I can never pronounce this this person's name, The Adventures of Witherall. Would you pronounce that name for me?
4: Uh, I've been pronouncing Leonardius.
3: That sounds good for me. Um, And uh, that's not a show that is particularly available, but I've listened to a handful of them, and they just are plain fun. Um, And Mrs. Mullet in there is his housekeeper, which is kind of a, a switch.
4: Yeah, probably the oldest female detective is the character she played.
3: Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I knew that she was an older person, and, uh, you know, she's kind of such a fuss budget and a uh, great voice, too. The Black Hood, I did not know The Black Hood, Barbara Sutton in that one, and Crime yeah, on the only,
4: Waterfront. And it's, it's it's tough to find that. There's only one copy that's, that's floating around. That was a mutual show, and it came right from the comic books, and they cleaned it up a little bit and, and had the uh, resultant uh, adventure show on radio. Uh,
3: this is the Black Hood that you're talking about? Yes. How did you get the one
4: show? Um, just asking people. <laughs> and, you, and you unearthed it. This is just remarkable. Well, and, what some, was and some of it came in right over the transom. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Time for Love, which uh-huh. was the Marlene Dietrich show. Um, and I could only find like two or three copies of that show among American collectors, and one day I get an email from a guy in Germany, and he said, I understand you're working on a book for Lady Detectives. Is, is uh, Time for Love going to be in there? I said, well, sure. And he said, well, uh, I'll send you some copies. And I said, how did you get them? And he said, they're in the Berlin Museum because wow. Diedrich willed all the copies that she had, and they were all transcribed, and uh, she gave them all the transcription discs. And he said that the German government has been gradually releasing them on CD with a little bit of, of German introduction, and it switches to English, of course, for the regular show, and then anytime it gets a little confusing, they'll run a German voice in there, speaking in the native tongue, saying what's going on, and, and out again. And and he just mailed me uh, three CDs. Uh, so I, I picked up 12 additional shows on that.
3: How exciting. And he he contacted you, obviously. You didn't right. contact yes. him. This was I
4: never uh, heard of the guy before. <laughs> but, but the, the Internet is, is wonderful for that type of communication, I guess.
3: And how? you said, came
4: out of comic books? Right, yeah. It, the comic books and the pulps and uh, magazines. And, and he was kind of a vicious character, and, and they really had to uh, clean up his act a little bit, bringing him to radio. <laughs> he couldn't quite be that violent, of throwing people out of windows and beating <laughs> people to a pulp. So uh, they, they uh, improved his manners sufficiently to, to make it as an as a adventure show for the kids. And Barbara Sutton was
3: his gal Friday.
4: Yes, and, and they didn't have to do much with her. She was in the pulps and, and in the comic books, and uh, a feisty little gal uh, who would, could, could uh, fight her way out of some minor battles and could assist the Black Hood in his endeavors. So uh, that was a logical thing to give her a good role in the radio, too. Wow.
3: I want to go just out of sequence for the last two here. More than just a secretary. That's pretty self-explanatory. Pick out your favorite on that one.
4: Oh, wow. Uh, what, what are my choices here? Your choices what are, are choices? Carol
3: Curtis in Stand By for Crime, Pat in Manhunt, Sandra Lake in Crime Files of Flamond. Am I pronouncing that one correctly? Uh, Flamond. Oh, it's French. I'm sorry. <laughs> there was nothing in there to give me a hint. <laughs> uh, Rusty Fairfax in Danger Mr. Danfield. Uh, I've listened to several of them. And Claire Brooks in Let George Do It. More than just a secretary.
4: Yeah. Uh, probably the first and the last. Uh, Standby for Crime and Let George Do It? Right. Uh, the the Standby for Crime had the built-in advantage that, that they had a the husband and wife team in reality. Playing a boyfriend girlfriend on the show.
2: Was that a national show, Jack? I, I I remember when it was syndicated here on KNX Radio back in the '80s, and I couldn't find any information about it. Was it a syndicated show? What yeah.
4: yeah, it was a syndicated show. Ah, uh,
2: okay. Okay.
4: And uh, and 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 some of the copies that are out uh, are actually Australian copies. Um, huh. That's. One of the difficulties that if we're just working with uh, press releases from mutual network and audio copies, etc., and it's it's hard to point to that demarcation when it became a actually an Australian show. Uh, in uh, it's a crime, Mr. Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, all the copies are from Australia, but what we've got to remember is, is the Australians uh, in the radio productions were very good in terms of accents. They could produce a show that sounded like it was all Americans, or all Australians, or all British, or any other variation you want on the English language. And uh, I, had, I had sent my copies of that because I couldn't identify any of these voices, and they didn't jibe with what Mutual put out on them. And I sent them to Bill Nadel, whom I, I think you know, Walden, and he's
2: yeah, pretty I do. good yeah. at voices. <laughs> he is.
4: And, and he, um, he called me back and he said, Well, I know why you don't recognize those voices. And I said, Why is it? He said, Because it's an Australian cast, all five shows you sent me. Wow. And uh, I've since confirmed that with uh, uh, Ian Grieve in, in Australia. And uh, Stand By for Crime uh, was brought to Australia also. And there are some Australian versions of that. Uh, and, and so, at, at any rate, uh, the, uh, uh, I feel that, that her contributions were uh, I- extremely uh, important in, this, in helping him solve these crimes. And of course, he was principally a, a radio broadcaster, but ended up solving crimes through his occupation. Uh-huh. She was she was a big help.
3: And then uh, you picked Let George Do It. What was special about Claire Brooks or Brooksy in Let George
4: Do It? Right. Well, uh, she was kind of uh, his Watson in a way. I mean, um, Sherlock Holmes talks about uh, while you or yourself are, don't produce light, you, you are a, a, uh, a venue of, of light proceeding to and through you. And, uh, and she would frequently uh, come up with something that he had missed, uh, in, in his examination of the crime scene or whatever that would put him off on the right track.
0: Uh-huh.
4: Um, and uh, uh, a strong uh, contributor who shared the dangers as well as the rewards of their, their crime solving. And, and her only lack of success was, was getting him to uh, recognize her as a woman who was actually in love with him. <laughs> And, and she drops hints along the way that, that, that he ignores blithely.
3: Mm-hmm. Every show she has some little twist in there, and he manages to get around it. Yes. Um, I, I really love that. Okay, I saved, I saved the one that amused me the most for last. You've got one in here that is supposed to amuse people. It's called Just for Laughs. You've yes. got four listed here. These are four detective shows, and they're actually make you laugh. Um, Can I read them off and and maybe you could give me a couple of lines on each one? Sure. You've got Sarah Berner, who was the star of Sarah's Private Caper. Mm -hmm. Sarah's Private Caper. Kitty Archer of McGarry and His Mouse. I love that one. (laughs) Jane Sherlock of Meet Miss Sherlock and Susan Bright of Susan Bright, Detective.
4: Right. The only one we don't know a great deal about is is Susan Bright Detective because we've never found any copies and we never found any scripts. And we're going principally on um, contemporary clippings of that show. And all we know is it was a comedy and I've, I've put the limited amount of knowledge that we have about the show in my book. But the others, the, the copies exist and, and you don't have to listen to them for more than two minutes when, when you agree with me this is a comedy show it just happens to use crime. And, and Sarah, of course, was uh, a, a comedian on a, on a variety of shows and could do any accent that she was called upon quite a variety of characters on the Jack Benny show, on the Gene Autry show, etc. And so on this show, they, they took full advantage of her impersonation skills by giving her a variety of voices that she would utilize uh, in the course of just one show, for example. She might uh, be uh, interrogating some gangster in and, and, and a Sophie Tucker voice and then she'll confront one of the victims, and she's a gypsy fortune teller. <laughs> and, uh, and she was really, really good at, at, at conveying humor uh, in, in, in a manner in which it, it really came over to the audience. And, and the network spent a lot of money on this show. This show was done live with a full orchestra something like 20 people, et cetera. And, and, and as I point out in my book, they weren't even afraid to spend money on the on the cast in terms of usually if you had you handed a script and it says, Okay, we've got eight male roles in this and, and two female roles in this you say, Okay, hire four guys and each one of them will do two different voices. They didn't do that on, on Sarah's show. Eight males? They hired eight male actors. <laughs> so there was there was plenty of money uh to be on those and and the production values stand up well in, in producing a very funny show about crime.
3: Well, I am impressed. Um, I'm, I'm I'm I keep saying I'm so embarrassed. I didn't know any of these shows existed. I said any of them. I mean I've listened to a fair number. I was so pleased when I went through it and oh I found one I know. Uh, so well, this is really and, cool.
4: and and I don't think you, that this, you're you're uh, less than typical of, of the of the average old-time radio listener. Uh, because there are very few of these shows that exist. Uh, Many of the shows, there isn't a single one that survived. We we just mentioned the Susan Bright uh, detective. Uh Uh-huh. And others are just maybe one copy, one audition, uh, and and we can go back and find the scripts sometimes and read those. Uh Uh-huh. But uh, that doesn't help the average listener in this hobby who goes through there and says, what the heck was that? Um, and, and, and because of that, sometimes uh, I, uh, I made some mistake. I mean, the uh, Helen Holden government girl, which from reading the, the clippings of it contemporaneously, you would think that she must have been doing something in terms of frustrating federal crime. <laughs> and there were no, absolutely no audio copies. I've never, never found any on that, never found the script. So after the book was published, the research at the Library of Congress found one script for me. And um, I eventually um, was able to track down uh, the lead, uh, Nancy Ordway, but that was after the book was published. And uh, she was in her early 90s. Um, she was chair of the White House Museum down in uh, Miami, Florida. I talked to her, and she said, Oh, goodness, no, that was just a, a pure soap opera. Uh, never anything but, never solved the crime or anything. And uh, But she said, I, I will tell you one funny thing about the show. And she said, uh, I, I was fired on the show because I wasn't attractive enough. <laughs> and I said, I don't understand that, Nancy. What are you talking about? She said, well, uh, mutual... Uh, Came to my producer and said, uh, you know, we've been releasing these publicity shots uh, of her to the Radio Guide magazine, etc., and, and we don't have much of a response, and uh, we need somebody more attractive in this role. <laughs> so can you do something about this? Can you change your hair? Can you do this? Can you do that? And she said, no, I'm, I'm at the microphone doing my job, you know. And uh, so they fired her. <laughs> I, I didn't have a face for radio.
3: Isn't that
4: amazing? Well, they so when you were, brought in Francis Blunt to take her role.
3: When you explain about publicity photos, I, it started to make a little bit of sense anyway, but how ludicrous is say you're on radio and you're not pretty enough. We yeah. have to do something. Yeah. You know, when, when you're talking about Nothing being available, and metaphorically nothing. I mean, you've certainly got something available, but the survival of the actual recordings of these shows is so limited. So maybe this question speaks to that when I ask what besides gender differentiated the shows with females doing the detecting compared to the shows with men going it alone. They survived.
4: Well, for one thing, they were on a lot longer. Uh, and, and the uh, they, pro- they probably had uh, greater strength in terms of what the networks and the advertisers were ready to, to pay for, for really good writers uh, but uh, on the other hand some of it was just I, I, I guess the luck of the draw uh, the affairs of Anne Scotland uh, enjoyed excellent ratings. Uh, Francis in a leading role, uh, one of the most experienced radio actresses, uh, who did a support job on that, and the show, I think, ran about 18 months or so, and uh, here's another one where we have no audio copies of it, and haven't found the scripts yet, uh, I thought that when she died, that her papers would become available, and that would include the scripts from from her one radio show as a lady detective, but uh-huh. they weren't, and I don't know where the scripts went. And, uh, so I'm, I'm not sure uh, how that goes. Certainly the, the, there was a, a, a popularity and hence a longevity in the married couples ones as well as the partner ones. Um, Nick Carter and Patsy Bowen were on the air what maybe 17, 18 years? But but some of the other lesser-known ones uh, were sometimes summer replacements, and they weren't transcribed. They were done live, and they didn't they didn't survive. A
3: summer replacement would help explain. Some of the situation. I mean, you get something like uh, a Philip Marlowe or a Sam Spade. They certainly weren't summer replacements, so they didn't have an opportunity to fade into the background and out of people's minds when uh, a season was over. That's really interesting. We're talking about a time uh, in old-time radio that the prevailing social mores, when it, women were in the home, they were raising families, they were waxing floors with Johnson's wax. Radio detectives
4: didn't didn't jive with that how did they make this work well i, th- I think you're exactly right what you say and i think maybe you even underscored part of the problem and and, and we have to admit that the the powers that be uh in the broadcasting industry whether we're talking about network personnel or the uh, advertising companies that had a great deal of control over what shows went on the air, were male-dominated. Uh, they were male scriptwriters, male directors, male actors. Uh, even when we do recreations to, today at, at either Spurt Convention or FOTR, you, you have a hard time picking up the script that has more female roles than male roles in it. And, uh, that doesn't jibe with the survivability of the old-time radio performers because just like any function of our society, if you want to count noses, for example, at a senior citizen's home, it's 70% women and maybe Uh 30% men. And that's true of the survivability of the old-time radio performance. And so we have to come up with scripts uh, where we can use uh, all the female voices of the guest stars and sometimes that involves changing the gender in the script in order to get another woman in there. Um, I can I can tell you one story that would, would would maybe illustrate that even better, which is not in my book. But uh, Betty DeManville, uh, I talked to her at the Friends of Old Time radio convention about 10 or 12 years ago, shortly before she died. And she was a radio director. And... She was eventually chosen to be the director of the FBI in Peace and War. Wow. And she said, Jack, I want to tell you that at the time I was doing that, I was the only woman director in prime time doing a crime show, because the networks, the advertisers, all the powers of me thought... You know, crime is basically men's business, and it should be men directors, and it should be a majority of men in the cast, and it should be male writers. So that, that's the reality of it, and, and I'm certainly not proud of it, and I don't think anybody should be. But well, it's
3: simply what happened. It's simply what is. Yeah. Um, and gosh, you can't be embarrassed or beat yourself up for something that you didn't do. Somebody else did. Yeah. Well, what made all of these people think they could make a female protagonist in a crime show fly?
4: Well, sometimes it was just a matter of uh, the star quality of the leading lady. Um, you know, you get a mercedes McCambridge to come in uh, as lead lead defense attorney, or Arlene Francis as the lead in Affairs of Anne Insc- uh, Scotland. Uh, Melina Diedrich as the lead in uh, Time for Love, and uh, they thought that would produce ratings, and, and it did. Um, but, of course, most of the stars uh, that were in these shows were known only to the other people they worked with behind the microphone. Even somebody as, as, as skilled and talented as a Betty Guard, who had maybe, after Broadway... 20 years of successful uh, broadcasts in a variety of roles over network television, um, and she was the lead in Police Woman. And, but that wasn't enough to keep that show on the air because they weren't quite sure who Betty Gard was.
3: <laughs> she wasn't a name brand like a Marlena Dietrich or an Arlene Francis.
4: That's right.
3: So she had the quality, but not the name recognition.
4: Right.
3: Wow. Tell me about separating. This is a question for you. How would you separate shows and the integrity of shows, ones that ran true, ones that were so far out they weren't believable? Which ones captured the imagination? How do you categorize these shows?
4: Well, of course, the, the, the comedy shows were just that, and they, and they weren't supposed to be realistic. Um, but I think that, that the majority of, of the scriptwriters who were producing these shows, starring lady detectives, were fairly accurate and fairly realistic, uh, and, and of course the, the top of the ladder goes to Candy Matson that was mm-hmm. right on the money all the time for realism.
3: And, um, on my next page and I really want you to spend some time on that because you've mentioned in the book some really solid characteristics about that show that put Candy Manson at the top of your list. So maybe we could do that right now. Would you do sure. that right now?
4: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the only thing wrong with Candy Manson was it came a little bit too late in the Golden Age radio. It uh, ah. came in the air in 1949 um, by the time it went off the air in 1951, uh, television had pretty much captured people's imaginations on the two coasts, meaning they were close enough to get those TV programs. Now, it didn't affect a guy like me in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. <laughs> because in an era before cable or anything else, uh, and, and if you were 200 miles from a, from a TV station, all you could do is sit and watch the uh, snow and test patterns on your TV. Um, but that was the only thing it was just an error in timing if it had come on maybe four or five years earlier it would, it would have been an even better success but um Monty Masters who was the the director uh, the chief writer and the producer of this show had had of course cast his his wife Natalie Park in in the lead and it was originally uh written as a male detective uh, with the name Candy Manson, they didn't, they didn't even change the name, and um, the, the story goes that, that they read uh, a script for uh, Natalie's mother, and uh, she said, Monty, I, I think that show would be much better if, if you gave the lead to Natalie, and she said, we've got all kinds of male detectives that are headliners, let's, let's put a woman in that goal, and, and they did, very successfully. And both of them had been working in San Francisco radio for at least 15 years before this show came on the air. They knew all the best voices. They knew the best sound technicians. Um, and, and the show was, was extremely popular in, in San Francisco, both from a listening viewpoint and the people that came in to watch the show live. They had originally uh, started broadcasting that show in, in a, a studio which held about 25 people, and within three months, they had to move to another studio which would accommodate 50 people, and by the end of the year, uh, they had it in the largest studio there in, in uh, that building, which, which you'd get 120 people in. Uh, so it was, it, was a very, it was a very popular show. Uh, the, the, uh, it was realistic. But at the same time, it was funny, and, and some of it were inside jokes um, that, that uh, sometimes only the cast knew, but the audience eventually caught on to them. And um, the sound effects were as realistic as, as they could. I mean, you knew where you were in San Francisco, both by the sounds and by the way the scripts were written. Uh, and, and you can, for example, pick up any episode in which uh, Candy Matson is is relaying her route on the downtown streets to get from such and such a place to such and such a place and every one of those streets really exists and that's really yes you do take a left turn at that street to get there etc etc so it was it was very realistic when you are listening to shows
3: if you had 10 shows in front of you would Candy Madsen be the one you pull out to listen to first Uh, yes you really do enjoy that show. Yeah. So it's not simply from a technical standpoint, a writing standpoint. They did everything. You really enjoy the show.
4: Yes, and, and, and I think it's a fair test that anybody else that, that, that has heard that, that show uh, along with any other of the female detective shows, other than the biggies, and I don't like to put them against the, the man and wife combinations or the big partner ones. I mean, I, not necessarily that. But any of the other ones that were pretty much on their own And and I I think candy will will come out on top with with any listener that that hears that, even people that know nothing about the golden age of radio and maybe heard that show for the first time.
3: How many of these shows had husband and wife teams on them?
4: Wow. Uh, Well, I didn't break them down (laughs) that way. And I've got those figures someplace.
3: how about just a couple of examples? You've given me Candy Madsen. Um You gave me one before. Uh,
4: well, was in, it? In, yeah. In, in 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 terms of, of of the of the married couples, of course, you were reciting them off when you were, went through the, the better halves. Uh huh. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Silly me. And uh, th- those were the, the married couples. There there were a few of them. Uh, as I said, for example, on Standby for Crime where the couple on radio were boyfriend and girlfriend, but in reality they were husband and wife, off the microphone. Now,
3: I didn't ask my question correctly, but you answered it exactly the way I wanted to, that these were actually a husband and wife working together on a show. Mm-hmm. And it didn't necessarily mean that they were playing a husband and wife like Mr. and Mrs. North. They were actually married, but they were working on the show. Right. Um, so, did that make a difference in the performance, do you think, for Candy Mattson, that the two of them lived and worked together?
4: I, I, I think so, very much so, because this, this was not something uh, that, uh, for example, uh, I have approximated that of the 98 scripts that Monty Masters probably wrote uh, in excess of 80. There were a few he didn't write, but the majority he did. And he knew exactly how to make his wife look good on the radio, how to make her look smart, how to make her look funny. Uh, and he could—he uh, knew the uh, characters to bring into the supporting cast because he knew exactly what the supporting cast could do in terms of accents and character development, et cetera. Because he'd worked with those people for years and years, and uh, so. And, and the other thing was that 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 i'm sure that that they spent much more time on um the writing of this and the putting it together and the casting because it's probably all they talked about at night or they went home is the next the next show you know for the for the for the, the the weekly show that they'd be working on and they would you know tinker with the script and spend a great deal more time than than two or three independent writers would have who had very little interaction with the cast or the director.
3: Did they stay together?
4: Uh, almost. I think uh-huh. there's, a, there's a divorce late in the, in the game, um, but uh, I, I, I'm not even sure. I don't think it was an official divorce. I, mean, I think a separation, but that was after uh, radio had, had, for all practical purposes, died, and they'd relocated to Los Angeles
2: Natalie's uncle was even on the show, Patricia. Pardon? Natalie's uncle was even on the show.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: As Rembrandt. It was was a family show.
4: Yeah.
3: Rembrandt was her uncle? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah, Yeah, that was the
4: uncle who told her to stay out of radio. (laughs) Uh, Oh, okay. They were both stage actors at the time, and uh, and he said... uh, Natalie, you'll be prostituting your art if you go on to radio. We are a stage family. And, uh, and she went on radio anyway and, and became quite successful. So by the time they got ready to bring this show uh, to the air, uh, she called her uncle back and said, we've got a really good part for you. <laughs> and uh, he, he accepted and, and did, a, did a wonderful job with it.
3: He capitulated. Oh. Yeah. Gosh, um, Other people's success can sometimes raise some interesting questions. Jack, I know we've got some time constraints tonight, so if I get to the border of my time, would you just give me a two-minute heads-up on it?
4: Sure.
3: Okay, thanks. One of the things, and I believe you already touched on it, but I'd like to explore it a little bit more, is that many of the associates and assistants get immediate Recognition, Della Street. Everybody knows she was with Perry Mason. Margot Lane was Lamont Cranston in the Shadow. Brooksy. Why do we remember so well and so instantly the women who were associated with men, as opposed to the women who did such a good job on their own?
4: Well, that's another interesting question, isn't it? I I'm, I'm not sure. I, I could I could venture a guess on something like that, and, and that is simply. That uh, uh, a woman on a popular show that's, that's sharing the lead with a popular male actor is going to make uh, a bigger bounce uh, in the ratings and the audience appeal than uh, a woman who doesn't have a male partner. Um, I mean, even Candy Matson, uh, who is certainly as uh, fiercely independent as a private investigator, Still had her boyfriend Mallard, who was on the Los uh, the San Francisco Police Department, and uh, there was some interplay uh, of a semi-romantic nature back and forth between them. But uh, I'm 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 really not sure why that would be.
3: I think you answered it when you said you've got a popular man and a popular woman. That's automatically a double whammy.
4: Well, you you would think so, and but but. You know some of these things that that were planned that way. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how successful they were. This business of well, you gotta have a woman on the show uh, because there's a wom- women are, are in the audience. So if you want to attract them to a detective show, you give a woman a prominent part. Uh, and and so we find that characters that came up either through the comic strips or the pulps or the comic books or novels or whatnot that never had a partner before. Got to the microphone. Suddenly, they had a female partner, and, that, and that's true of Ellery Queen. You know, there wasn't uh-huh. a female partner until he got to radio. Uh, Dan Dunn uh, never had a female partner as the Secret Service operative until he got uh, on the radio, and suddenly he had a female partner. Um, so I don't. I don't know. I, I sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, in, in another genre, which would be. Uh, kids' juvenile fiction on radio, uh, the, uh, the, the advertising community and the networks uh, were, had no problem attracting little boys to the radio all the time. From the time that radio was, came on the air, they, they were building their own radio sets at home. You know, uh-huh. But they wanted to attract a girl audience. And so somebody said, well, there's this popular comic strip about a little girl <laughs> little Orphan Annie. Let's put her on radio, and that'll pack the female audience. All little, we'll have as many little girls as little boys. And they said, "Great!" So Little Orphan Annie came on the air. was was a a, a wonderful success. And the first radio premium that they sent out, where you would send in your Ovaltine box tops, came in, and ninety seven percent of them were from little boys. <laughs>
3: Didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> they said, "Oh, <laughs> well, so much for the girls. All the boys are having love affairs. <laughs> Little orphan Annie, that's cute. <laughs> They've got crushes on Annie. Um, so somebody missed that call. Isn't yeah. isn't that interesting? Uh, that speaks to the audience. Who, who were, who made up the audience for these particular shows? And when I say these particular shows, you've got the women exclusively in the problem-solving or crime-solving role, and then we've got pairs in the crime-solving role. Were the pairs, like Perry Mason and Della Street, were they more nighttime for nighttime audiences as opposed to soap opera listeners?
4: Well, no. Perry Mason was right in, right in the middle of, of the soap opera uh, Oh, in, you're right, in, you just said that in, to me, in, yeah. In mid-afternoon, and it was only a 15-minute show. Um, but the majority of of the um, the lady detectives were were in prime time, and so, of course, they're going in competition and sometimes headed to head against another male detective or against a comedy show.
2: No mm-hmm. call you are on the air with Jack
4: French. Hello, Walden. Hello, Mr. French.
1: Good evening, sir. Hi, Patricia. I had the real pleasure of reading the first edition of your book on tape. It's a talking book, and I hope the update will be recorded uh, soon. And the lady who read it did a very nice job, by the way. It was a very enjoyable book.
4: Yeah, I don't know if the Library of Congress will go back and do something like that at all. I I agree with you. They had a a wonderful uh, woman to read that uh, for you. Uh, in fact she's a friend of mine she's an actress here in the Washington D.C. area uh, Nikki Duvall and uh, Nikki regularly narrates books that the Library of Congress has chosen for the Talking Books program Um, there weren't too many changes at all in in the text and we did that for an economy reason but I did have a long uh, introduction to the second edition uh, being honest in, in any errors I had made or anything that I had, had since corrected, because when I wrote the first edition, I said, okay, my research is not stopped here in this, I'm going to continue on this, and, and I have. And so I've, I've, I've corrected um, a couple of things. The, the big one, of course, was Helen Holder's Government Girl, which turned out not to be a detective, <laughs> and, and The Lady in Blue turned out not to be the network show, which I found was actually a a program in, in New York in which the Lady in Blue came on and told jokes and played funny records for the kids. I used to have some of her records, in fact. Yeah.
1: She was. Uh, she did the record Little Willie, leader of the band, was one of her records.
4: Okay. Yeah. She and she had. She played. She played Jerry Lewis and Danny Kay and stuff like that. Right. But, but there there are two audition copies of, of the Lady in Blue, who clearly is a detective. But apparently that never made it on the air. What
1: I wanted to ask you was two que- Well, two questions about private eyelashes, and one about the, your presentation you did at at FOTR last year on federal crime fighters. Uh huh. The first one is, police woman. I know there's only one episode that I know is available, and that was. And I know it was the last episode of the series, and it was a Phillips H. Lord series based on Mary Sullivan. Was there? Do you know much about Mary Sullivan and that series?
4: Um, uh, I, I know as much as I can know from reading her biography, uh, and, and that's where they got the story rights to it. Uh, uh, Phillips H. Lord uh, contacted this woman who was on the uh, police department for, I think, 22 years or so. And, and of course, it, was, it wasn't in the 40s. It was in the 20s and the 30s. Uh, when when women were used principally as as uh, guards for other women prisoners and searching other women, etc., and occasionally used in an undercover capacity, but uh, of course she endured a great deal of, of discrimination in those periods. But anyway, her biography uh, points out that not only was she in the police department, but two of her brothers were. So, but her, none of her stories were used in in. The radio series. They just turned it over to the writers and said, you know, go with this. And then they would pay Mary royalties for the use of, of her name on that. And in that recording you have, and I have too, uh, Mary was was on there to say
1: goodbye to the audience. Well, she was uh, she was investigating a, a Lonely hearts thing, if I remember right, and uh, exposed the killer.
4: That's correct. Yeah, there's supposed to be two other copies of that floating around. I've never found them, and uh, I'm, I'm going to keep looking. Second question on the eyelashes is Wendy
1: Warren and the news. I always found that to be such an intriguing series because, first of all, Douglas Edwards giving real news in the midst of a soap opera, and then Wendy doing women's news and then shifting right from her. Uh, row of Douglas Edwards and the women's news right into her soap opera. Who came up with that idea?
4: I, <laughs> I, I'm i not really sure, uh, although Jim Cox offers a partial explanation uh, for it in, in, in his book on the great uh, radio soap operas. But basically it was just a, uh, probably like anything else, a committee decision, and just thinking, well, the way to capture the audience's attention and bring them in was, is to start as a legitimate broadcast of, of news. And, and as you say, they got Douglas Edwards to do it, who was a, as well-known then as, as he is today, and uh, brought him in to give the first five minutes of news, and then uh, Florence Freeman, as, as Wendy, would come in and give three minutes of the women's news And then she and Doug would exchange pleasantries as if they're off microphone. Well, what are you going to do this weekend, Wendy? And well, here's what I'm going to do, and this, that, and the other thing. And and she'd walk out of the studio, and and, uh, uh, a strange man with a dark mustache would bring her over to the car and threaten her life, and off we'd go into the soap opera. But it, it was skillfully done.
1: It was very the one episode I have I found very entertaining and, and it was very well done. And now I want to ask you about your presentation last year on federal agents, which I found very fascinating, your your presentation on the history of federal agents. And as one who worked with the FBI, I would be curious as to uh, I know collectors have often debate, your favorite series between This Is Your FBI and The FBI and Peace and War, and we know that The FBI and Peace and War was not the official program, but This Is Your FBI was. Correct. As a, as a series, as listenable series, and one who actually worked, do you, do you have a preference in the two shows as far as acting, drama, presentation, and so forth?
4: I, I, I think the two shows are, are very close in in any measurable uh, quantity uh, in terms of the writing, in terms of the acting, in terms of the production values. Um, But uh, if we just wanted to go on longevity, uh, the FBI in peace and war ran longer than the FBI approved, this is your FBI. So it must have had a slight edge uh, with the listening public. Did the, uh, did,
1: did the director actually, as I re- heard, or at one of the conventions actually detest Peace and War, or, did, or was he just not happy that, that CBS produced the series without Bureau Cooperation?
4: Well, uh, I, I think he really disliked it, but I think his dislike from it came because, you know, Frederick L. Collins pulled an end run on the FBI, and, and they weren't able to, to uh, get back their show. In other words, they had... Collins had contacted them uh, much earlier and said that, you know, I'd like to write a story book about the FBI in terms of what happened in World War II. And this is what I'm going to call it. And they said, fine. And they gave them all the background information on closed cases during World War II. And, and they were very pleased with the success of the book. So then when, when Collins said, um, by the way, I'm going over to CBS and I'm going to sell this as a radio show, they said, well, no, you can't do that. I mean, we only gave you the rights to your book, and that's it. And he said, well, no, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and they protested and tried to to, uh, to strong-arm him, and uh, it went to the Department of Justice for the resolution. And the Attorney General said, sorry, FBI, you gave him those cases, he can do whatever he wants with them, radio, TV, or whatever. So... But Betty Manville, who, as I said earlier on this program, had, had directed that show. And when I talked to her, I said, did, did you really use uh, much of the stuff in the book? And she said, oh, no, the first six months of the program, we'd used up everything he had in the book. And thereafter, my writing staff just created all these uh, crimes and their solutions. Um, but we had to keep paying Collins $50 a show for the royalties.
1: It was a it was more entertain i guess the thing was for me I always found it more entertaining in the sense that there wasn't a lot of the and I guess the bureau meant it to be an education there wasn't a lot of the preachy aspect that the narration was on this is your FBI
4: well it was that, and it was also that the FBI insisted that that uh, we don't want necessarily excitement on our show we want uh, scientific analysis and we want to show you the the progress of our forensic science and this and that and the other thing, which it turns out to be great uh, you know 40 years later on CSI but at that time that wasn't used to what the public was looking for in, in law enforcement action shows.
1: Well they were you know, they were both good series though I, I would think and also I also enjoyed your presentation on uh, things like- Treasury agent and some of those other shows that you never hear much about these days I mean they were short live shows but you never you never they're not shows where a lot of copies exist
4: that's right that's right and and unfortunately for our hobby you've got to have quite a few copies uh, in order for a show to um, command any type of following in amongst the radio community have you ever thought of writing a book in the future
1: about uh, Crime shows in in general, like like uh, the the various genres of detectives, private versus public versus uh, people who did detectives just as a sideline, those type of things. Because you'd be very good at it.
4: Well, yeah. Except there's there's a couple of books like that that have already been written, and I'm not sure that the public's ready for another one. We're we're a very small niche market, you know. Uh, Jim Cox has got the uh, uh, the great. Uh, uh, what does he call it? The, uh, the
2: radio president?
4: crime fighters. Uh, yeah, greatest crime, radio, great radio crime fighters out and, and he which is more in encyclopedia fashion, I guess. It's mm-hmm. not uh, a discussion narration per se, but he, he lists everything about the show and summarizes uh, the identities of the acting and the, and, the, and the staff in terms of writers, directors, producers, etc., and then a, a general uh, overview of the type of cases that were handled on it. But no, I, I haven't. I've uh, I, I unfortunately end up in, in really niche markets. What I'd really like to do for my next book is to, to write one on uh, Bobby Benson, the Cowboy Kid. Oh yeah, but that would be very good. You know, how many would there be seventy five people ready to buy that book in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you
1: know, people who listened to Yesterday USA, I'm sure would. Yeah. One thing, one final thing on the FBI thing, it was interesting that in the uh, the major biography of J. Edgar Hoover that I read, uh, there were two major biographies, Richard Good Powers and Kurt Gentry's. Mm-hmm. In both biographies, they get the information wrong on the radio shows. Uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Powers says that the, F- the This Is Your FBI came to the theme of Love for Three Oranges, and and so do the, I think the other author may have too, and and they got both, they got the shows mixed up.
4: <laughs> well, and, and I think you've accidentally hit on another thing that, that made that show more successful, the official FBI version, because that was a very compelling theme song, you know, that was on everybody's, uh, people are even whistling and humming that when they go to work and stuff, so. Well, I wish you luck with your
1: your new edition, Mr. French, and we hope you will be on the air with Patricia and Walden again soon. And when you do, your Bobby Vincent book.
4: Okay. Thank well, you. I hope to be invited back. Yeah, i have just about I've gone a little past my time that I promised to do, but uh, <laughs> well, and I can think of a way to get out of this gracefully. Again.
2: There you go. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Just want to remind everybody, if you are interested in Jack' updated book. A uh, good friend at Ben Omar at com called Private Eyelashes, and that's the way you can get a copy of the book. And I'll let P- Patricia go ahead and
3: uh, wrap it up. Okay. Um, Jack, I love the title. <laughs> Private Eyelashes is just so perfect. Did you come up with that?
4: I, I wish I had, but I, but I didn't. Uh, I'm sorry I I give, I give credit to uh, Arlene Francis's biographer, uh and when they got to the portion in her biography where she was playing the affairs of anne scotland she says i guess you could call me a private eyelash and uh, i I remember reading that uh, at the time and saying if i ever write a book about lady detectives i got to work that phrase into the title
3: well you did and it's great It, it really flies well i have just two more questions jack if you could bear with me when you were doing your research, what did you come across that really surprised you, or what discoveries did you make that you didn't expect?
4: Hmm. Um, I, I think the, the one thing that I, I that really surprised me when I was uh, reviewing the uh, scripts for Kitty Keene, which was a Hummer production, that every one of the scripts on every one of the lines Told the actor or actress how to say it.
3: On you know, the there script.
4: Was, there, on the script. <laughs> right in there. It, it, the line was, yeah, the line started like, like uh, Mary, and parentheses, poignantly, then her line. Jane, questioning, then her line. Now, an adjective for every one of the lines in there. It must have drove the cast crazy.
3: Um, was enough to make it stand out for you. That's really interesting. Final question, I think it's almost predictable. Give me three shows, female detective shows, you think would make good shows for people to listen to.
4: Well, Candy Masson is always at the top of my list. Uh, And there's not that many. There's only 14 in circulation. But but they're they're well worth a listen, a second, third, or a third listen. I, I really enjoy Two on a Clue, uh, and, and it's a, a, a very vibrant uh, and a very uh, engaging uh, and entertaining show, and it, it's, it's only 15 minutes. And uh, I, I guess probably the next one would be uh, a Defense Attorney with uh, Mercedes McCambridge. Uh, that's a, a, a very strong show, good production values. And uh, should have lasted longer than it did.
3: Those are good ones, and these are ones people can find.
4: Yes, those are two, those are pretty well available. Mm-hmm.
3: Two on a clue. I have to go looking for that one. That was one I did not recognize. I'll tell you a couple of things that surprised me, and then I will let you go. Okay. Five names that came up: Mary Sullivan, because she was actually a policewoman or involved with the police department, mm-hmm. and it was an advisor of sorts. Marlena Dietrich, I did not know she did radio. I did not know Arlene Francis did radio. Una Merkel jumped right out at me. And our very own Janet Waldo was in um, Lady of the Press.
4: Yes. Yep.
3: I never knew that.
4: Yeah, there's very... I didn't
3: know that. I love it when you do things
4: like that, (laughs) I I don't know how many copies there are of that show of Janet Waldo's. I think maybe three or... Four, and I think she's in two of them because it was on the air for quite a while and uh, she surrendered the lead or she took over the lead or something but half the shows are her and half the shows are another actress I can't remember off the top of my head
3: That's, that's not something that has ever come out that I remember in conversations with Janet uh, that Walden has done and we've heard at different times so that was that was a pretty neat surprise for me <laughs> I am at the end of my questions, Jack. You are absolutely wonderful, and, my gosh, I had a great time.
4: Well, I enjoyed it thoroughly, too.
3: I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Thank you, and have a
4: safe weekend. Okay, invite me back again sometime. You okay. bet. you bet.
2: Thank you, Jack.
4: All right, good night. Good night. Good night.
2: And there's our good friend Jack French. And remind everybody, if you want this outstanding written book, uh, our good buddy Ben Omar has it at com called Private Eyelashes, it's written by Jack French. And if you'd like to see any the the newsletters, Jack, if the editor for, go to RadioRecall.com.
3: RadioRecall.com, I have just discovered them within the last couple of months. And every couple of minutes, I have um, I, I kind of scroll around up there. And say, okay, good. Let me see what I can find now. They're just they're just wonderfully written, but the book is exceptional. I uh, out of the, I, I would give it a five star. It is a five star book, and that is for the book itself. Period. Whether or not you enjoy detective shows, if you. Would prefer not to listen to women detective shows. If you'd rather listen to comedies, it doesn't matter. This is a wonderfully written book, and the information is just terrific in here. Uh, Almost all prose. uh, Occasionally, there is a little clip from a script for illustration, but the information is just remarkable. I'm telling, honest to goodness, if he wanted, (laughs) if he wanted to find me in the FBI, I I truly would have given up. I do not know how he managed to locate as much information and pack it in there as he did. It's just a wonderful book. So, that's the end.
2: That's the end. Well, everybody, I need Patricia and I are going to stretch for a minute, and we were talking about our good friend Ron from Hawaii. Yeah. And Ron uh, sent Patricia and I a copy of his new CD, and we were talking before the show, and he said, you know, if we're going to play any song tonight, we ought to play a cut from the CD. And I have it queued up,
3: Patricia. This is good. Let me just give a a two-line introduction here. Um, Ron was uh, co-chairman of the staff and group that oversaw and put together the McKinley High School Band presentation it's called a tiger roundup a musical night to remember this is a high school band by the way that uh is performing this music and walden has one of them keyed up for us ron if you're listening it is fabulous i mean this is just an extraordinary experience to listen to these kids play so go for it walden all right
2: in the mood everybody and